Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we have a fellow podcaster, Frank Mink. He's a former white supremacist, now a human rights activist, standing against the growth of mass incarceration. And uh, we had a little pre-interview talk, and I'm already fascinated, and I have so many questions to ask him. So without any further delays, Frank, our standard triple question at the beginning is, how old are you, where did you grow up, and what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? I'm 47. No, I just turned 48. All right. Uh, Just turned 48. uh, Originally from Philadelphia, born and raised there, and... South Philly and Southwest Philly, uh, two different neighborhoods. And um, what was the third question? Uh, what generation, if any, do you oh, consider yourself a member? So of? I am a I am a Gen Xer, but I'm a huge supporter of the Gen Zers. <laughs> wow, we have a lot in common. But uh, yeah, so I I think uh, because the average person who hears the word white supremacist is about to like delete the episode and never listen to it again. And I did say former, but uh, let's just get right into that. Um, in whatever way you like to tell the story. How did you become one, and how did you unbecome one? All right. Well, so I'll, I'll start with. I mean, you know, again, it, it just doesn't like happen. There's, yeah. you know, there's definitely reasons. So I have to start from the beginning, and uh, hopefully the your listeners will, will stay involved. Um, so you know, I grew up to a, a mom who she was from the Irish Catholic neighborhood, and and she wanted to kind of she was a bad girl, and she liked really liked the bad boys, and in the seventies. At the time, the bad boys were these uh, were the Dagos, the Italian guys. And uh, my dad is this little Italian drug dealer, Rocky Balboa lookalike guy. And um, he was this little street brawler. And my mom was totally into that, I guess. And uh, I mean, I wasn't there, but I was there. And um, those two had a little uh, relationship, uh, tried to hold it together, but they were both, you know, drug addicts and alcoholics. And so... Uh, that didn't last very long, and my mom had to move with me. She they lived up in a mixed neighborhood where my dad was from, and then they moved back. She moved back to the Irish Catholic neighborhood, where um, my last name was still my dad's last name when I first got there, and which was Bertolini, which is uh, very Italian, and uh, that's not very accepted in our neighborhood in a way. So, um, you know, and I think my mom did it for a bunch of different reasons, but the reason that I was always told was that they didn't want me growing up in the Irish neighborhood being known as Frankie the Dago, because that's anyone with an Italian last name is they automatically get that nickname and there's trouble with it, you know? So well, anyhow, they uh, took my, my um, dad's name away, Bertolini, and they gave me my mom's old maiden name, which is Mink, which really comes into play later on in my life. Um, so anyway, I, uh, I remember that happening. I remember that being an incident. I remember uh, learning to learn how to spell a new last name. That was, uh, you know, as a kid, I was probably in first grade when they when they really changed my name. And so I remember like learning how to write. And when I was writing like my last name of Bertolini, I heard, "Stop writing that name. You now write this name." And uh, and I, I remember, I can remember this as a kid. It, it was a little bit shorter of a name, and I was such a lazy student that I was like, "Yes, this is awesome!" Like, yeah, you know what I mean. So, um, so anyway, I just. Uh, had this new last name and, and, and started this life in my mom's neighborhood. My mom was still a partier and a drinker, and she, we wound up moving out of her parents' house, my grandparents, and moved into our own little spot. And, you know, I, I can tell you, I remember whenever uh, I would go to bed and I would hear awkward lungs and Jethro Tell come on, that the house would start smelling funny um, with weed. And um, I remember 
my mom would have friends over a good bit. Then there would be cut straws and razor blades in the bathroom. Um, you know, so, you know, and I always knew this is kind of nefarious. You know, I just knew something, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, never judged my mom. You know, I remember there was times uh, every once in a while we would be on food stamps. And I remember being very embarrassed about as a kid. I remember being asked to go to the store and in the corner delis in Philly. And you have these... Uh, you know, I had to go with food stamps, and that was so embarrassing because I knew you had to rip the food stamps, the food coupons, add the food stamps out of your book, and you had to hand them over to the the cashier in front of everybody. And and look, man, in South Philly, when you're in the corner delis, everyone knows your business. Uh, you know, let alone everyone's somewhat related with each other. We're all like fourth or third cousins from each other. And uh, you know, the hottest girl in the neighborhood would come in, and that's embarrassing. You know, I have to pull out food stamps in front of the hot girls in the neighborhood. So I remember having just a little tweak of like something's not right. And uh, my mom went, I'm getting married to a guy who was just a, an abusive, drunk, drug addict who, who hated my guts. I mean, he hated me from the day we moved. He, my mom let him move in the house. It was now his house. And um, I kind of wanted a dad around because I didn't really see my real dad. But this guy was just not. A good human being to me um you know he's a child of god but you know he was just he was ruthless and uh he used to talk about always beating the italian out of me because he you know he knew i was in part dego wow. so i'd always hear his stuff about that and so anyway i would go to school i'm always grounded i'm always in my room i'm always grounded like i, I was grounded for every little thing and uh you know he liked putting his hands on me and you know, physically, not sexually, and but he just, you know, he like smacking the sh- smacking the crap out of me here and there, and um, eventually I'm going to school. I'm getting in trouble at school because it's the only time I get to hang out with my friends, and um, but uh, you know, I get sent home from school a lot. My school is right two blocks from my house, and you know, South Philly is such a little small little neighborhood, you know. And uh, I remember I would walk home from school, and and uh, and I tell the story a lot, but it's because I think people get it. Is you know, I was so scared to go home that I would try to get hit by a car on 4th Street because 4th Street was the last street before I would get to my house and I used to plot it out like I was like you know what today's the day today I'm just going to jump out in front of it back then this is I'm dating myself just the you know mid 80s and I was there was like Yugos like little Yugos or little cars oh yeah, yeah. If, if I get hit by one of them I know I'm not going to die I know it's just going to hurt but it's not going to like really break me like if it was, you know, whatever, a Camaro or whatever. So I remember, and I would go out there to get, get hit by a car. And, and everyone in South Philly gets hit by cars. It's like the thing to do. Like, I mean, it just happens because we live in a little small, narrow streets. And uh, and it's always like a cousin that runs you over because everyone's really related down there. We're all second and third cousins by marriage to each other. So, and I'll tell you, I would go to get hit by that car, man, and the self-preservation would always kick in. And I'm, an, I'm a born and bred athlete. Like, my legs were always disgustingly muscly. And, I mean, I just was always that way. And whenever that car would come in, I'd jet, jet right out of the way every time. Like, my brain would be like, get out of the way, you idiot. You don't want to get and, and I would go home, and I would feel like such a loser. Like, you can't even get hit by a car, dude. That's how bad your life is. Like, you want to get hit by a car, and you can't. And so one day I go home, and uh, I walk in my house, and my stepdad is waiting for me because I, I got to school. I called home and said that I was getting sent home early because I, you know, got into a fight or fear of the exact melee that had happened at school. But I go home, and, and as I'm walking in the house, man, I, I didn't see him at first, and then I just seen him, and boy, he just pummeled the crap out of me and uh, told me to pack my stuff. I'm going to move it 
you know, with your real dad because your mom don't want you no more. I mean, he loves saying that stuff. He used to always tell me that my, you know, my mom doesn't want me anymore. I mean, he was pretty ruthless. Wow. So this was this was his chance. He was like, pack up your stuff. You're moving with your real dad, the dirty Dago. They'll go live up there with him. See what you like up there. We'll see how great you had it here. And, and I was like, I'm gone. I don't care if my dad lives in a cardboard box, man. If I get to get out of this prison that I was living in, it was a bully to basically monitor my every movement in my house. So anyway, I finally I get to go move out with my dad. My dad lives in a very rough, rough neighborhood, um, really rough. And uh, I, but I, my dad has a little bar, which is uh, you know a little neighborhood tavern, which, which was like the ghetto bars of the ghetto bars. And I'm not joking; it was not always sunny in that bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, you know, that was my dad's deal. He just worked and sold drugs and sat in that bar all the time. That was his deal. And that's where all the boys hung out. It was his friends. It was his social. So it was everything. So then I had, go, I got, had to go to a new school called Pepper Middle School, which was an all-black school. And uh, I was this white kid that was a little bit of a skateboarder who was an athlete. And so I show, you know, April. And the thing was, you know, probably beginning of April, I show up at this new school. So I'm the new kid, let alone I'm a white kid, let alone I'm a skateboarder. And I'm like this extremely really talented athlete and so i trying out for the sports teams trying to make it into school i'm making it on, on these formerly all blacks teams i'm on the baseball team i'm playing you know whatever i'm just anything i tried i got on and coaches like me because i'm a, you know just a good athlete and so but the, the outside of that school was horrible um in that school if you were a boy and you had to drop a deuce you didn't do it at school because you were very vulnerable in that situation so you like would you know, it was just very, just very scary. And there was, and so um, I started hating. I seen, you know, I was getting jumped. I was fist fighting. I seen other white kids getting jumped. I seen other black kids. If you were a smart black kid at our school, you were just as vulnerable as we were. I mean, there was kids that won't even raise their hands to answer a question in our school because everyone, like, at the time, it was like Urkel. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you Urkel. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it was, I'm totally getting it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it was, uh, it was bad. And, wow. um, so I remember um, I would just run home. So real quick, I'll tell you the story. Is, um, sure. What I used to do is I would cut schools. So now I just stop going to school altogether. I was like, I'm not going back. I would just take the trolley and the L train or the, you know, take the trolley over to the, whatever, to the train. And I would take the train down in the center city. And I would just hang out in center city and, and use my school tokens just to come back the same way. So anyway, I would go down there, you know, every couple of days I'd go down there and I used to go and sneak in Ben Franklin's museum, his house. And it's a really cool wow. museum. And so what I would do is I would wait for this because other school kids were there at school time. They were there on class trips. And I would sit outside the back door and I'd wait for the class trips to come out the back door and I'd run in. And, you know, sometimes they would leave all their lunches there because they would, that would be like their lunch spot. So they would like leave bags and they'd go over to the Liberty Bell and then come back over and eat lunch. And, of course, I would just go dip in their lunches and, you know, have a free lunch. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I would go around this museum and I would just study Ben Franklin. And I like looked at all his exhibits and all of his experiments. And uh, I would go listen to his speeches that they had these little model things that do his speeches that he used to give over in France to try to get them to help us in the, the Revolutionary War. It was just a really cool, super cool museum. And I used to go there all the time. And uh, a year later, 
when I go back to school, funny story is I'm at my class one day and they say, hey, we're going to go on a class trip to Ben Franklin's house and Liberty Bell and all that. And I'm telling everyone in school, I'm like, yo, you don't get it. I sneak in that place, man. I, I know all, and I'm telling you, I sneak in the back. I know all the exhibits. Wait until I show you this, show you that. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool, Frank. But whatever. So, but I'm like so excited. Anyway, we show up to go to that museum. And when you go through the front door, there's a big, huge sign right at the front door, which I had never gone in the front door says free admissions <laughs> and i'll tell you i never liked that museum ever again because i loved it when i was stealing the knowledge wow you know? so and I, I became this actually and i'm still to this day gonna try to go to one of my one of my idols one of my people That's i look up to oh so cool yeah um so anyway that that summer before that that happens so i get i, I graduate from school I missed the last 40 days of school and they still graduate me because it's Philadelphia public schools and it was just the way it works. Um, so I graduated from school. So I got to go do whatever I want for the summer since I passed. And I went to go up to my cousin's house up in uh, by the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area. Okay. And so they, they were my mom's side of the family. They moved up there years earlier. My cousins hated it. You know, they were South Philly kids and now they live where the only all their neighbors are Amish or Mennonites. Oh, that's it. It's like my uncle like literally bought a farm and he like bought, you know bought a house on some property. It wasn't like a full farm, but he had chickens and stuff. But there was Amish people that were right next door, and Mennonite people that were right next door who all had cow pastures. And I mean, it was amazing to go up there for me, you know, because it was just a break for me. And so this summer, I'm you know going to go up there. I'm just living in my dad's neighborhood where there was like. Just shootings. We lived catty corner to the housing, pro the Pasco Street housing projects. I mean, it was just, you know, so now this is like a huge break for me. And my cousin that lived up there, I really looked up to him. And he was kind of this skateboarder, punk rock kid. And I, you know, when he was in skateboarding, that's what got me in skateboarding. When he got into punk rock, he got me in the punk rock. So I couldn't wait to go hang out with him that summer. And he wasn't a skater punk rocker anymore. He was shade bald, part of this neo Nazi skinhead thing. So um, I go up in his room, I'm hanging out with him, you know, I'm, I look up to him, like I said, and on his wall, he had wallpaper, you know, newspaper articles about neo-Nazis and, you know, white supremacists and they, they Adolf Hitler and, you know, my aunt and uncle who are great people, they really are good people. They would just thought their son was going through something, you know what I mean? He hated that they moved, so they, it wasn't like they were promoting this, you know, they were just like, because they did not like this stuff, but they were kind of like, whatever, you know, do what you got to do to get over your anger about Philly, you know, about me. Yeah. So every night, these other neo-Nazis used to come over my aunt's house. So it was kind of like, for a reason, my cousin's house was kind of that spot that they didn't come hang at night, and they'd sneak beer over, and they you know, I'm 14. They're like 16, 17, and 18 year old guys. To me, they're super cool. They have cars. They bring girls over once in a while. They get tattoos. You know, it's just cool to me. And so when these guys would all start drinking, they start talking about like multiracial society. I have no idea what they're talking about, right? But when they start talking about black and white, I'm like, wait a minute. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, just like these black kids. Now, these kids. They live around Amish people. They don't, live, you know, they don't know really what they're talking about. So my cousin would say stuff in front of them, like, "Yo, you should ask my cousin Frank. He, he lives down there. You, you know, tell him about where you live, Frank." And I was like, "Yo, man, it's crazy. I live right next to the housing projects. Da, 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 da. It's, it's off the, it's off the hook down there, or whatever." And these guys would like listen to me. 
and I'm telling you, like, I told you about my parents, and the truth is, if I walked in to my parents' house, I could have a black eye, I could have played sports and did really good. My parents never said, how was your game, or what happened, are you okay? Or are you doing okay in school, or do you have a girl? Because my parents, they didn't have time for me. And these guys, like, just them listening to me was like, I got to talk about my life with them. So one night we all go to a concert hall. I'm like the little skateboarder, little punk rock, little skateboarder kid hanging out with these neo-Nazis. I think they're cool. And when we go to these nightclubs, all these other neo-Nazis would show up. And I'm just like, and I don't know the other neo-Nazis. So my cousin would have to say to them, like, yo, we're going to go into this nightclub and go beat up all these other people. Don't accidentally beat up my cousin because they be, I still have hair and they don't know because I didn't look like them. So they're like, so my cousin would make a joke, like, don't accidentally beat him up, you know, whatever. And they were like, oh, we got him, we got him. These big neo-Nazis would put me on their shoulders and go into these, you know, punk rock clubs and, and dance pits and kick and punch. And I'd be on their shoulders kicking and punching with people. And, um, and then eventually all the neo-Nazis would get kicked out because we were there starting all this trouble. Um, so what would happen was they kicked us all out and I would stand outside with them. And the nightclub would get, it'd be time for everyone to leave the nightclub. It's time to go home. And people would not come out or they wouldn't come near us. They would walk the long way around us. And you would see when they would have to come near us or even look at us, they had fear in their eyes. And I love that. Are you kidding me? Like, I feared every, you know, I'm going to be real honest about who I was back then. Yeah. I might have been a 14-year-old athletic kid, but I was so full of fear. I feared my parents. I feared my my step parents. I feared my school. I feared if I was going to get enough freaking food to eat some days, and now people are going to fear me. And I love that feeling. So that night, after one of the concert halls, they bring me up to a friend's house. There's a bunch of neo Nazis there, shaved heads, Sig Highlands, playing white power music. And they, were, you know, one of them said, "Yo, when you going to shave this crap off your head?" Oh, and I was uh... like. I was like, I'll do it now, man. Like, is this an offer? Like, and they were like, you want to do it? I, like, I love it. Yes, let's do it. And every guy that was there that night, there was like probably, you know, 10 guys, whatever, that were at this little thing. Each guy would grab a clippers and like did one row of my hair. And he'd be like, boy, power. Another guy do it, be like, yeah, Sig Howard, what's up, you know? And then they, you know, some guys, you know, that knew me were friendly with me already, that knew me better than the other guys would, you know, shave my head and slap me in the head. And you'd be like, ah, that's it, you know? Yeah. But I was in. Wow. How you got in is now very clear. And then I kind of just want to skip over the part of what you did while you're in. What would be a possible solution to what happened to you? I can't think of anything that would prevent what happened to you from happening. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there, yes. There, I, there was nothing back then. There was okay. nothing. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's stuff that we can start to do today, and that's a lot of early childhood development type stuff that we need in our, especially in our inner cities. Is yeah. What we really need to, to, to tackle this problem that people like me, because there's million, you know, unfortunately there's hundreds of thousands of kids like me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's why it's like, cause I used to volunteer in inner city Oakland. And I mean, I've seen in the two thousands, a lot of what you were describing. So I, I, you know, I know no one there would like know who Steve Urkel is nowadays, but I know exactly what you're referring to. And like also a kid's desire to fit in is a thousand times more important than anything else as it should be, which is kind of odd, but it, it should be like fitting in as a child is very important. It's important to feel loved. And so when these, you know, it's the same way a gang member gets initiated. It's exactly, I mean, it is a gang. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that I'm concerned that we're lumping 
lumping a problem that is different and deserves a different name under the word white supremacy. Like as if it's, oh, let's just eradicate the ideology of a racial hierarchy when really what you described to me is what happens when someone ingests too much fear. So, so I mean, and I know you do work with this, so let's, let's kind of like... I guess go into that. Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. So yeah, um, you know, just, you know, real quick is that, yeah. uh, you know, my life had changed. Uh, when I was 19, I got out of prison and um, I kind of seen the system is kind of set up in a bad way. Uh, I've seen a lot of kids that were in prison that should not have been there or were getting black kids that were getting triple the time I got. I, I kidnapped an Antifa member or not, they're not really a member, but a person who brought into the Antifa lifestyle and, and uh, the, that movement. Mm -hmm. And so um, anyway, I get released from prison. I only had to do like three to five when there was kids that did way less than me from Chicago um, who were getting 16. Wow. You know, so wow. there was like things like that that I seen. And then, you know, um, and just the love that people were started to show me, you know, a Jewish man gave me a job. So, you know, and, and showed me that I was actually a smart human being and stuff. So, um, so what I do today is um, I had a profound moment um, about uh, almost four years ago now. Um, I, I, after I got out of the neo-Nazis, I, 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 when I was in the neo-Nazis, we weren't allowed to do drugs. No drugs allowed at all. If you did drugs, we, they would kill you because all the illegal activities that we were doing, robbing banks and kidnappings and the killings and stuff, drug addicts are always the first people in your crew to snitch on you. Yeah, always. Okay. So no drugs were allowed. Plus, we didn't think it was white, whitish to do drugs. And plus, my parents were drug addicts, so that fit so well for me because I really hated my parents, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, anyway, I, I then got into drugs and um, kept, you know, try to get sober here and there. I had 25 years trying the, the program, um, but not getting it, not getting it. And uh, about four years ago, just fast forward, four years ago, man, I was going through a divorce. I lived in Iowa. I was uh, coaching hockey, had the, the perfect life, the farm, the farmhouse in the city of Des Moines, picket fence, the dog, the kid playing hockey. I was coaching hockey as a profession now. Uh, things were going great, and, and I started the relapse, and some bad things came out, and this divorce I was having with my wife, and and, uh, and I, I basically almost lost my mind, man. And uh, what happened was, because I have to give credit where credit is due here, is um, I, in the middle of my divorce, I'm relapsing. Uh, and I'm dating, uh, I find out that I'm Jewish by blood. Like, oh, wow. Amazing. I, the Mink, the last name Mink, which I had no idea ever, whatever it was. I just knew it wasn't Italian. We never looked up to it. It was like, as long as it wasn't Italian, but now <laughs> find out that it's Ashkenazi Jewish. Wow, that's crazy. Right? Yeah. So I now, now I've been a civil rights activist for years, doing tons of civil rights stuff, getting people out of the neo-Nazi movement, coaching hockey programs to generate more black kids to come play the game, doing all this. And then I find out I was Jewish. It was amazing. Anyhow, uh, in the middle of this divorce, I find like the one Jewish girl in all of Des Moines, Iowa. There's not a lot of them, but I found the one and I start dating her. And, um, a beautiful woman, grateful, so grateful she was in my life uh, during this really tumultuous time in my life. And anyway, I left her house one day. I was seriously in the midst of a pretty horrible relapse at the time. And I'm driving back to my buddy's house, who was an active drug addict, alcohol, alcoholic too. I'm driving over to his house because I'm just leaving her house. 
and my, my, I had a no contact, not no violence. There was just a no contact between me and my ex-wife because of the arguing and the, the stuff coming out about both of us, whatever. I don't want to tell anything about her. We and her great friends to this group, great friends today. And, but at the time, um, it was just, we weren't allowed to talk to each other. And I refereed a hockey tournament to go see my kid and broke the no contact, got out of jail. Like my, everything, I burnt everything to the ground again like drug addicts do, I burnt everything to the ground. And I'm leaving this girl's house, going over to my buddy's house where I'm staying. And I pulled over to this, um, pulled over to this church and uh, just was so broken that I was screaming up to God. And this is, I'm telling you, this is the truth. I was screaming up to God, please fucking kill me because I don't want to kill myself because I know through the life that I lived that everyone I know that has ever killed themselves, especially to their children, that you don't get rid of the pain, you just now pass it back to them. So I knew that part, right? So I'm sitting in this church parking lot and I'm screaming up to God, please effing kill me. Uh, let a Mack truck hit me. Let a telephone pole fall on me. Let me get a major car accident, something so I just don't kill myself. Please, please, please do this for me. Um, I can't take this pain anymore. I, and um, while I'm, and I'm crying and I'm screaming up to God, and while I'm doing that, my phone rings and it's that girl. And I'm like, oh, what the hell? You know, I pick up the phone. I'm like, what? And she's screaming, crying. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And she says, please get back to my house. My sister just killed herself. Oh, my God. And I'm going to tell you that for whatever reason, you know, the whole world stopped for once. But I had a blinding light moment in my life. Wow. Everything stopped. And this police came to me and said, go to California. I have work for you. And now go to California was because there was a man here that I met 12 years earlier when I was uh, making a TV show for AMC doing interventions on neo-Nazis just 12 years prior. I just happened to be doing the show, which it never made to air. I mean, I have the pilot episode. It's actually on YouTube if you want to get sent to it. And um, yeah, so I was, while I was here, I was in, in the program. And uh, while I was at a gathering of, of, our, of our peoples, one day this man came over to me out of the blue and came, that was just 12 years earlier came over to me and goes, huh, a fellow Hebe, meaning a fellow Jew, Jewish person at a meeting. And at the time, I didn't know I was Jewish. So my first first response back to this man was, I'm not Jewish, dude. I'm actually a former neo-Nazi doing, I'm here doing a TV show about doing, you know, getting people out of the movement. And he's like, no, look like a Jew to me. So whatever, because he was a, he's a, a, a Jewish man. And so now I'm finding out I'm Jewish. And when that voice said, go to California, it meant call this man, call this guy. And I called him and I said, I'm going to come out and you're going to walk, you're going to, you know, be my sponsor and you're going to, what I call my recovering rabbi now. But I said, you're going to, you're going to be my, I'm, I'm coming out to LA and you're going to sponsor me because I'm losing it. And he's like, sure, come on out. And so I came out. So I listened to that voice. I came out to LA and this man took me by my hand and walked me 12 steps closer to God. And in that time, I converted, finished this conversion over to Judaism, which for me, and this is my story, and for your listeners, you, you do you, because that's the best thing about Judaism. We don't preach our religion. You do you. But I'm telling you, for me, it was like when you put a zipper on a coat and you zip it up and the teeth just come together perfectly. Finally, this recovery thing with my a belief in a higher power, which was through Judaism, just zipped up perfectly for me. Like I just started getting it. 
And um, so my activism today, because the job that God has for me is I got to testify uh, in front of the United States Congress, well, the Civil Liberties and Civil Rights uh, Commission in, in 2020 about friends of mine that were neo-Nazis that all became cops. Because it's a very wow. wide, it's a very wide uh, range of people in that movement that are always like, look, don't get the swastika tattooed on you. Don't do the, the crazy things like stay cool and just become cops and get in the military. And, and so I had names, I had rankings, I had police departments, these men were in, and I just never brought it up before until I did this article. Um, and so anyway, um, I go and I testify against, and not testify against anyone, they, they brought me in in front of like AOC and tons of different congressmen and, and people who uh, listened to me and took and, and checked out every word I said, just what everyone knew, every word I said, they, they researched to make sure that I was not, you know, pulling yeah. their chain, you know, and it was true. And as soon as that happened, the death threats from police and from neo-Nazis was crazy. So I had to go in hiding and I went and hid out on a boat for two years wow. and just, yeah. And I just started going, this is my job. And plus the, the feeling like you were talking, my feeling that I see mass incarceration, how we have people that understand this and people really need to listen to these numbers because they are real, they are factual and they're in our face right now is that we have 34% of the world's women's prison population and we are only 3.7 percent of the 3.8 going down to 3.7 because we're shrinking seven percent 3.8 percent of the world's population but we have 34 percent of the world's women's prison population and it's all mostly poor women women of color that we have learned to just put them away and it's not and for all the people that scream well they've done something wrong no mass incarceration isn't the upstate prisons anymore it's the growth of the american county jail system which benefits and this is people are screaming he's anti-cop it benefits the police it benefits the local sheriff's departments when they have people in county jails they get paid by tax dollars for every head they have in there every night so if they hold someone for two weeks or two months Every time those people are in there, they get money and it's become this money making thing and it's real and it's in front of us and we can stop this. And that's the job that God gave me. My God said, I want you to go stand up for the poor because I can, and I talk to tons of different religious people in my life. I'm very active in my religion and I'm very active in talking with other people because I don't judge my, again, I, you know, we'll all believe in the Abrahamic religions, we all believe in that one God. And, and so did the Sikhs believe in one God, and so did the Native Americans. So we all got it right. We just got to believe in the one. That's my belief. Um, but on top of that, whenever you read the book, read that book. If just You can take whatever stories you want out of it, and you can try and be against gay marriage if you want out of it. Fine, I don't care, or whatever you want to believe. You could be against abortion. You could do whatever you want. But there's one thing that keeps stapling throughout most of the book is that it's stand up for the poor, take care of the poor, and we're not doing it right here, right now. So I know that I have my God on my side to keep doing the speaking that I'm doing and getting the word out that we need, and, and there are real solutions. They're not just uh, defunding the police. It isn't that, because look, we need to fund homicide divisions. We need to fund rape divisions. We need to fund missing missing children's units. We need to fund them and double fund them. But stop funding 
the traffic stops, the pulling of black people out of their cars for not using a blinker. We need to start putting that under control because that is what's building mass incarceration. It's getting people on little, little crimes and getting them in on probation. And then they violate the probation because they smoked weed. And, and, and the whole thing against weed is, and I'm clean and sober, but the whole war on weed is, 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 is crazy. And we're the only country, civilized country in the world that actually train our officers to search cars and pull. They don't do it in England. They don't do it in Canada. They don't do it in, in most nations. They don't do that. Yeah. It's here because it became this money-making, uh, you know, we need to check your car, which is, we have the Fourth Amendment. Uh, I grew up in Philly. I learned all about the Constitution. I learned about Ben Franklin's part in the Constitution. And I like to say this real quick, just so you can put... I'm not, again, I'm not anti-cop. Ben Franklin, the first, when people always say the first police were made to catch slaves, it's not true. Ben Franklin made the second or third police department in all of America, in Philly, and it wasn't, he's an abolitionist, so it was not about slavery at all. It was about stopping robbery and prostitution in the center city, Philly, which, because Philly's always been Philly, and it's always yeah, been yeah. that way, right? Yeah, totally. So, so, so anyway, I mean, like we have the chance to get, it's, it's about real concrete police reform, and also, it is about something that a lot of people have been talking about, but the, the people on certain aisle of our political parties won't go for this because they scream socialism, and that we need massive, massive early childhood development in this country. Because, look, we are com- becoming one tribe. Nobody can stop that from happening. It's the truth. We are going, by 2050, the most prevalent thing that we're going to know is this mixed race of people. Yeah. And in 300, 300 years from now, it is a fact we are almost all going to be that color. You could stop immigration right now. You could stop, not let, don't let not one more human being come in our country the way people talk, but just using their logic. Even if you stopped it right now, it's too late to stop that we are merging as one tribe. So let's make us an intelligent, a smart tribe and figure this thing out and know that with all the stuff that we have going on in this country one thing that we all agree on all sides of the house is we have a mental health crisis right now and one of the ways we get to get on top of this is by early childhood development because we get to catch this stuff earlier yeah and start to work on it and fix it because it is what the problem is and the one thing i'll say too is that the gen zers are starting to see this. And this is why I'm a huge, see the Gen Zers are going to have the opportunity in this world. By the time that they leave this planet, way after I'm gone, way after you're gone, the Gen Zers might be able to write the obituary to racism in this country. That's awesome. I, I'm I'm a huge fan of Gen Z. I've said it publicly many times. I get into a lot of arguments with friends about it. And uh, I definitely share and sympathize with like virtually everything you said um my take on judaism is a little different because i was raised jewish and i have a lot of jewish in-laws and so it's it's a different take on the same conclusion though which is like it or not what people call change isn't really change it's evolution it's happening it's happening all around us and if you stand in the way of it it's gonna hurt and if you go with it it might lead to brief periods of insanity because that's just how change happens with humans but um it seems to me very foolish to be putting people away after they do crimes instead of teaching people how to behave better and and deal with their own minds so i mean i'm 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 a thousand percent with you i think the one thing i'm starting to realize now i'm 41 i'll be 42 in like a, a month about from now so we're, we're we're close enough in age that i 
I am hoping you'll agree, but obviously feel free to, but I feel like really essentially the most important thing to do is on every single human interaction level, always be promoting education and like helping people. And so like, I'd love to say like, write your congressman, but they're just bickering and looking for votes. So I'm not saying give up on politics and I'm not saying give up on law enforcement and give up on all these other things so much as we all have like such great chances to make huge, important interactions in small interactions. And like, you know, just the guy who was Jewish and hired you and before you knew you were Jewish and, you know, just showing people kindness is so important. And so it's, it's weird because the only thing about Gen Z that I'm a little worried about is very often the louder members of it are not showing kindness. Are you noticing that? I do. Cause I, I work a lot with a lot of uh, transgender people. I will just the work I do. Um, yeah, I also have a, a restaurant that I manage uh, here in LA. Where and um, and I and I have stressed this to some of my friends is like when when my generation make a mistake and call you by the wrong gender by you know whatever yeah. is to be kinder to us that we don't know and just <laughs> exactly. say like hey I'm I'm a woman understand that I want you know and not be like and not scream at us and not you know, scream that we're you know racist or bigots and stuff like. Be kind to us because we don't know. We're learning too. We're learning too. So you know, just to, to to be a little bit more kinder with us, and it absolutely is a is is a, a staple of that. Um, and the thing about you know the the Jewish man that hired me, he hired me when I still had a swastika on my neck and I still shaved my head. Like the the act of kindness, he said it because at the time I still had beliefs. Yeah. And he and when and when I asked the buddy who got me the job, I said, "Does he know what I believe?" He goes, yeah, he doesn't care what you believe. Just don't break his furniture. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I think that's a great anecdote not to end the interview with because I'm still going to let you say uh, your last piece. But um, but I like that to punctuate that because I think um, really that's all I'm asking people who are listening to this is like, like you said, everyone just has their own path and everyone has this like blinding white light moment. Uh, or maybe everyone doesn't, but I think most of us do. And I think if you don't lean into that light and you ignore it or you resent it, life is just going to capitulate on itself and get harder and harder for you. Meanwhile, listening to it and then going on with your life and then just telling people like, this is my mission and I'm driven and I'm, I'm doing it, but peacefully is so important. So with all that said, and, and again, I mean, I, I wish I could give you more time and, and hear even, you know, longer parts of your story. Uh, but I, I did just, want to get to the parts that you spent a lot of time talking about, which is like how we can help each other and what we can do. Um, so you did tell me in the pre-interview that you have a podcast and that's part of your activism. So I'd love to let you just kind of share and talk about that and then we'll wrap things up. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I have a podcast. It's called the Frank Ming show because I'm not creative and don't come <laughs> up with any good names. So, um, and it, and it's always, it's always geared towards social justice real social justice again it's you know again it's not just screaming at the system it's ways that we get to fix it and and there are there are ways that have already happened to where when um you know when the police do something wrong now what we get to do and it's we're allowed to do this when everyone to know that is that we get to flood their their stations with with phone calls now you don't get to call the 911 because that's against the law and we need for people to be able to get access to getting life-saving help but we get to call all the numbers and just keep calling and keep saying like yo like whatever the incident was 
you could say, yo, this is unacceptable anymore. And they're going to start hearing it, right? So it's just this, so you, so you just keep on top of this stuff. And, and I'm telling you, there's thousands of us doing it right now. The police are getting sick of it. Uh, they are starting to learn. <laughs> I love it. We're all children of God and we need to stand up for one another. You're a very, very interesting man. You're very, very well-educated. And, um, you know, it, it's it's weird to say this, but uh, you, you found a way to tell grave stories with levity and with humor and with intellectualism. And, and I think that's really important. And so I hope people listening to this not only gave you a chance, but will give what you're offering them a chance, which is open your mind to being open-minded and don't just resist everything that scares you. Thank you, Frank. This was a great interview. You, uh, I, I'm just so thankful, and I'm so thankful that you're out there. And everyone listening at home, uh, obviously the best way to support me and this podcast is to head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up for the free weekly essay that I write, which is pretty much in a line with what Frank was talking about today, which is I'm just trying to bring people together and keep you optimistic and cheerful about the future while also reminding you that uh, not everything and every day is going to be optimistic and cheerful. So uh, love to all of you who listen and thank you for the support. And my name is Mike Oppenheim. You've been listening to Coffin Talk and we will see you soon.